So are the three criteria now, COVID, injuries and the African Nations Cup. I understood that the criteria were COVID only. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. Now you're welcome along to the Sunday Paper Review. Joe Malloy with you this afternoon. I'll start by running through the back pages across the papers. So good news for Christian Eriksen according to the mirror here. Ericsson's the bee's knees, so it seems Christian Eriksen is set to sign for Brentford within the next 72 hours. So back in Premier League football, Christian Eriksen, which is great news for him. Wish him well with it. The uh, star then, they go with the events yesterday where Aston Villa were hit by missiles. The Everton crowd uh, throwing coins and bottles and a, a baguette even as well seemed to land on the pitch. So that's made the back pages in quite a few places. Everton nil, Aston Villa one bottle job is the headline as you might expect. Manchester United make the back pages across the board as well. Picture of uh, Marcus Rashford, rash and grab Marcus Steele's win with late hammer blow. Manchester United beating West Ham by a goal to nil yesterday, very late on. Mail on Sunday, similar theme. Uh, Rashford seals it in Fergie time. Manchester United won West Ham nil. Uh, beneath that, you won't be shocked to see Ranieri out. Watford, as is their way, poised to sack boss after woeful defeat to their relegation rivals. And then a couple of papers have the GAA story on their back page. The GAA Central Council gives green light to proposal. So it does seem that come 2023, there is now an excellent chance we'll have a new format to the Gaelic football year. The green proposal, just to remind you, uh, leaves the basic structure of the GA calendar unchanged, writes Alan Morrissey here in the Mail on Sunday. So it has an all-Ireland round-robin system. Basically, we'll have eight provincial finalists and the top eight Alliance League teams into uh, 16, four groups, round-robin. In a sense, the shape of the season will be a league, then a provincial championship played across five weeks, its own competition in a sense. But as you see, there is a benefit to getting to a provincial final. And then we're into a round-robin All-Ireland Senior Football Championship, which would be, uh, I think, a welcome change for a lot of people. So it seems to have a lot of support. Central Council have given it the uh, go-ahead to go before Congress this uh, month, next month rather, February. Uh, back page of the Sun. Uh, Gordon Manning has that story on the GEA as well. Uh, GEA go green. And then beneath that... Uh, Gerard Jibes fans say sack the board. Yob ban vow as bottle hits cash dinya. That's all about the situation there at Goodison. And then we have the Sunday Independent. They lead with the rugby. Great day for Jimmy O'Brien yesterday in a Leinster jersey. He scored four tries as Leinster hammered Bath, scored 10 tries. It was one-way traffic at the wreck. Beneath that, Rashford's late strike leaves United smiling. Uh, just to show you even... For example, the front page of the Observer, the news section, they go with football shame. So it's big news over in the UK and they have a picture of Matty Cash and Lucas Digne holding their heads after being hit by bottles throwing during that game. So that's going to be a big story, I think, over in the UK this week. And then uh, Sunday Times, the sports section, picture of Rashford wheeling away in celebration, hammer blow, Rashford strikes late to beat West Ham, snatch place in top four. And on the right-hand side, fans protest, bottles thrown in Everton loss. Paul Joyce writing about that there. Very happy to say Dion Fanning, associate editor at The Currency, is in studio. Hi, Joe. You're the first paper review guest in studio since about March 2020. <laughs> really? Okay. Congratulations. Thank you. It's good to be here. And Tommy Martin, Virgin Media Television, is with us the good old-fashioned way, virtually. Hey, Tommy. <laughs> Hi, Joe. Yeah, I'm holding out. <laughs> Tommy's not, in a mask sure. for anyone listening on the radio. <laughs> not, not sure about all this. <laughs> Too quick for my liking. I hear you. I hear you. So um, just on that fans uh, bottle protest, I mean, there's only so much we can say, but uh, Paul Joyce here, Sunday Times, disillusioned Everton supporters uh, vented their fury. He writes, Everton confirmed that a supporter has been arrested, identified on CCTV. Lucas Dinia, of course, the former Everton defender was hit, as was Matty Cash. And then chance of sack the board and... Bill Kenwright was on the streets, flanked by police officers as he was about to get into a car talking with fans for a couple of minutes about the situation. He was asked to explain the season. He replied, horrible. And on it goes for Everton. Thinking of Man City scoring a late goal against Arsenal, getting hit by bottles and coins thrown down. And now this, is this a more common thing, Dion, of late? Not especially? Um, potentially. Like, you, you, there is... There is that sense 
in football and not just in football I suppose that uh, people are on uh, a knife edge all the time about their whatever tribes they, they happen to belong to um, and you know there there is possibly a pattern there but I think this story is uh, also specific to Everton I think it is um, uh, like you know I, I saw you know the, the Bill Kenwright stuff and it does like clearly things have gone very wrong for Everton this season like the decision to appoint Benitez was, was a terrible one um, doomed to end how, how it did end and the fact that uh, Lucas Dean was playing for Villa yesterday, sold by Everton because he fell out with Benitez um, and you know you see the sack the board banners there and whatever the Everton fans felt about Benitez is also a question mark about a board who sacks him but before they do they actually sell the player that that, that he's fallen out with and who's been such a good player for Everton mm. so um, there's an awful lot of stuff there uh that isn't going to be resolved by like you know Duncan Ferguson is a caretaker appointment he like he is making it, it's kind of an in, instructive in 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 uh, in how far and only so far uh, making all the PR right PR noises will go there was a quote from him before the game where he he was asked uh, do the, these players re- realise what it means to play for Everton and uh, he said they do now uh, and well, you know, you could argue that they've known all through like the season. They haven't. They haven't reflected. You know, the the modern day Everton uh, has been sort of personified on the pitch. But you know, there was also. I think they said on BT yesterday said that Duncan Ferguson had had called all the pubs around Goodison and said the first drink is on me today. Uh, and <laughs> again. That's great. That's fantastic. But it doesn't do anything. It doesn't really do anything for, for Everton. But they're gonna they're gonna stick. I think stick close to the Everton the Everton way now. They're gonna you know Rooney is the favourite to to take the job, and again, uh, a club lurching from one extreme to another, and it, it isn't going to get any better uh, anytime soon. No. Did Duncan not care to mention to the players what playing for Everton meant over the previous number of months when he was assistant? No. <laughs> Well, just but maybe he was being, maybe Rafa was holding him back well, maybe by, that was uh, it. you know by his own instructions uh, just a brief mention so uh, Jonathan Northcroft I don't know if people are into their match reports these days or not but there are plenty of them around but uh, he makes uh, a nice summation I think of events at Old Trafford yesterday where he says Rangnick is uh, one of the thinkers who's shaped modern football but sometimes it pays to put the brain away and surrender to emotion to forget innovation and go old school can't break a deadlock just send on a whole lot of strikers and that pretty much sums up uh, what happened yesterday he said uh, there's nothing ph- philosophical in putting first one and then two and then three additional goal scorers on the pitch when looking for a breakthrough so he says that it was quite a gamble as in Bruno Fernandes was their sole midfielder quite a gamble and uh, Rangnick's bet came in and how so I don't know Tommy maybe that's the moment where Rangnick has started to win Manchester United fans over we'll have to see I don't know like I was you know I was watching I was watching the highlights of this last night and it's it's one of those situations where you know like West Ham were obviously emboldened enough to be pushing for a win and, and Jared Bowen loses the ball high up on the right wing and the, the right the fullback Fredericks is, is pushed on and look to give Rangnick credit he, he did put on I mean you look at who he put on Rashford Cavani and Martial uh, I mean that's what United have, you know. They do, they they do have that firepower, but that's not any different to what was happening under Solskjaer. It was, can we can we win games with the sheer, you know, weight of of uh, you know um, attacking um, talent that we have that they've amassed over the last few years of of uh, um, of, of you know uh, lavish spending and. Um, you know, you could you could be you know you could be looking at a situation where that ball goes into the box. On West Ham point of view, they get a win, and it's more gloom for Man United. On the other hand, you're talking about this as a potential turnaround um, for for Rangnick, or a potential you know maybe things are lifting for United now under Rangnick. It's not really, you know, in, in the in the bigger picture, like when Rangnick came in, this was the hardest game he had in terms of league football between his appointment and Man City on the fifth of March. So this was the one where, you know, you might say 
they'd they'd have a bit of a test. You know, everything else has has been you know should should have been you know theoretically manageable for a, for a squad like United's. So all it really says is that yeah, you know maybe he's knocked them into a little bit of shape and, and a bit of order. I don't think there's any great evidence of um, of his. Um, you know his um, style of play that we we expected to see. Yet, certainly the noises coming from you know some some pieces during the week doesn't sound like the players are particularly bothered. Nor should they be for a guy who's only an, uh, an interim manager. I mean the whole thing is just it's just so <clears throat> typical United. Like United is like a it's it's like a Netflix drama. It's like a Ted Lasso situation. It's just you know Rangnick's the new character in here for. For this season, for this series, it'll be somebody else uh, next season, um, and and all the while, like they're they're good enough. I mean, when you look at what they're trying to do, they're good enough to finish top four. If he knocks them into a bit of shape, they will do that. But it, you know, you look at what the the real top teams are able to do in terms of that pressing football. It's just so much more sophisticated and way beyond anything. You kind of wonder if if United, you know, what's the point in even trying to do it, um, like yeah, Liverpool and, and City do it. So you know, yeah. I mean, you know, great moment for for United fans. Another last minute winner, but same old, same old, really. Um, yeah, I I agree with Tommy. I think you know we talked about Everton. I think United's willingness to embrace uh, you know the next big, the next fad, uh, and then realise that maybe they got it wrong again is is kind of extraordinary. Whilst at the same time, during the you know, period since Ferguson has left, managing to miss out on all like this is an era of great coaches. They've managed to dodge them all. They've managed to dodge them all, and that that isn't like ultimately at some point you have to kind of go, okay, this isn't just bad luck. Like, what is it about? And you know, they 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 didn't want to appoint Conte. Now he's not in the Guardiola Klopp bracket, but he's not far off it. And again, they found they gave themselves reasons and justifications for not going for Conte. Um, the only one they went for was Mourinho, who was who was over the hill at that point. Um, and Ranić, you know, he came in, and like the interim thing, as Tommy said, like the way he wants to work, you, it's very hard to kind of get people to buy into it if they know uh, he's going in, in three months. But at the same time, he's there as the uh, consultant to appoint the next manager after what is. On, Unless you know something extraordinary happens, is probably going to be a pretty mediocre uh, kind of run as manager. He's now going to be the guy detailed with finding the next manager. Maybe they'll get it right then, or maybe again there is something in how Manchester United operates, and we saw it in the stuff Ed Woodward came out with. Our, our sources close to Ed Woodward came out uh, with in the uh, weeks he, he, he his departure was announced, that maybe there is something in the structure mm. of the club as it is now that is stopping them. And uh, they seem to be going right back to Ferguson, and I thought it was interesting in those Ed Woodward stories that uh, he was stunned uh, and almost reconsidered taking the job on his very first time, you know, in, when, when Alex Ferguson told him he was retiring. Uh, a 71-year-old man announced that he was retiring, and this took Ed Woodward by surprise. Like, this this isn't kind of, this isn't really... You compare them, for all their faults, you compare them to how Manchester City have developed uh, and how they have used their money smartly, and it's it's night and day. Yeah, it's been surgical. So, at page 21 of the Sunday Times, we have an Irishman interviewing an Irishman. One of them is David Walsh, the chief sports writer for the Sunday Times, an English paper. And we have Owen Morgan, who's the captain of the England T20 side at the moment. They're trying to build up to the World <coughs> Cup, which is in nine months' time. And he's in Barbados, and they have a five-match T20 series against the West Indies. And uh, this is kind of a, just an interesting conversation, and it's for an English audience and for an Irish audience. So uh, he's 36 years old now, now uh, Morgan. No intention of retiring is the big hook for the interview in many ways, and he's talking to Walsh via Zoom. He reminds uh, the audience generally, I suppose the English in particular, Morgan, a teenager, he left his home in North County, Dublin, having no ambition other than to become a test match cricketer and that didn't quite work out in the way he would have hoped but when it comes to the shorter formats of the game it really has worked out and Walsh mentions how he's built a fine career in limited overs cricket he's recognised as much for his leadership as his batting 
Uh, he looks younger than his age on Zoom, says David Walsh, retains the enthusiasm that compelled him to give up the good life in Ireland for what he imagined might be a better one in London. And uh, then he gets into the interesting part. When Owens Morgan speaks of we, he now means England. And he says that he feels more English than Irish, in quotes, more English than Irish. This needs explanation. So Owen Morgan says, England's given me a, a life full of opportunity, family I absolutely love, and I'll spend the rest of my life here. It's been an amazing journey. As a family, we went back to Ireland for Christmas to see my parents. I love being there as well. I'm Irish and I'm English. I moved here with a dream and I'm living that dream at the moment. So David Walsh brings up the upcoming Six Nations, for instance, uh, because Morgan was a decent fly half at uh, Catholic University School in Dublin before cricket became his life. Saracens are his club and his team, but who are his country? (laughs) So Walsh says, uh, surely at Twickenham on March 12th, you'll be cheering for Ireland. Morgan says, for that game, I feel I have a foot in both camps and it's a win-win situation for me. David Walsh says, no, this is one game where a Dubliner can't (laughs) sit on the fence. And Owen Morgan says, I'll be firmly on the fence. I've seen both sides of the fence and I like both sides and there's nothing wrong with that. (laughs) Interesting, Dion. Very interesting, Joe. Uh, I would say that for an awful lot of Irish people who live in England, they would go a long way down the road with what Owen Morgan is saying. Uh, the last maybe 5 or 10%, I'm not sure how much Owen Morgan really... Uh, look, he, he says it, he, you have to take it on face value, but the fact that there are a few booby traps there in terms of being an England captain and coming out and saying you won't be supporting England... Uh, um, because if you remember, he got a hard time for not singing. I think Piers Morgan a few years ago gave him a hard time for not singing "God Save the Queen" as England captain. Sounds about right. Yeah. So uh, you know there is that that um, awareness to you know he's aware of that bigger picture. You know the hostage of fortune he gives if he says something. But I think um, when I say that a lot of Irish people, the, the, the Irish people who made their lives in England, who, who are extremely happy there, who have, you know, maybe you know, have English family, have all that kind of thing, who have, who have kids who support England. Um, uh, you know, I, I consider, I lived there for a long time. I have, you know, my son was born there. I have all those factors I would consider, um, you know, I, like a lot of similarities. I've come back, we've come back here now. Mm. Um, and, but, so I think what he says about England is very true for an awful lot of Irish people. That, but the, the bit that people will be interested in is the bit that I wonder about because I think there's a it, it, he's he's playing a, a political game to a degree there. Um, I remember before it must have been during the World Cup, um, and Morgan was asked maybe England had a. At a, before the football World Cup, and Morgan was asked something about World Cup memories in a England cricket press conference. I think that's what I'm remembering it right. But anyway, clearly he was asked the question, "What are your World Cup memories?" And clearly his World Cup memories were, uh, you know, Giant Stadium or whatever. And he gave a very kind of vague answer again because there is um, a huge uh, being England captain is a is a. You know, he's okay. He's a one-day captain. It's not quite the same as being the cr- captain of the of the England Test match team. But Morgan is a phenomenal leader. He probably should have been captain of the Test match team, uh, and it is a role that England views as a kind of you know as a, as a huge like it's a deeply symbolic role, and it's something that has great meaning in the country. So I think uh, he's clearly trying to reflect that. In, in his answers. And the other thing to remember is on the other side of it, he is like he has given great answers. He has spoken brilliantly about the England cricket team because it is actually a team, a, a multicultural team, mm. uh, the, the, the team that he leads. And he has given wonderful answers and very, uh, in, a, in a country led by the clowns that it's led by, he has given... He's been one of these people in sport who's actually spoke in a way that actually would make you r- remind you yeah. of the tolerant multicultural country that England is as well. Yes, I don't doubt he's been very sincere here, Tommy. At the same time, whatever his you know deepest darkest feelings, he probably, as Dion says, 
understands he can't come out and say, well, I really hope Ireland destroy England at Twickenham. <laughs> yeah, I think this is where, uh, and like it's something we are very uh, well versed in in this country from the sort of the, the flip side of, of the situation from the, you know, the Jack Charlton days in particular and, and before and the granny rule and all that is is where the the sort of um, um, intangible or, or, you know, heartfelt feelings about nationality in your country and patriotism and all those sort of, you know, potentially kind of uh, dubious things as well as, uh, you know, things that are, a lot of people are very positive about meet with the hard realities of the life of a, a professional sports person, like the, the, you know, the simple career path that a professional sports person wants to follow and looks to you know build their career on. I mean, his career path is of, a, you know, a, a, a uh, an elite cricketer in Ireland and to excel and to fulfill himself he had to make that sort of you know he had to make that leap now and I, I don't know if Dion might know this is his mother English yeah she is yeah yeah so I mean you know look it's that there, there's that there but other players have done it as well from an Irish cricket point of view but you know he was good enough as Dion says to be not just a, a, a journeyman over there and and you know um and have a taste of it, but to, to get to the position where, where he did and, and, and captain England to, you know, to win the Cricket World Cup, I mean, and a huge, and a huge public position. And he has, as, as you, you guys are saying, to manage that in his, in his public pronouncements, but where, like where that, that hard reality, and it was the same as, you know, Ray Houghton and, you know, Andy Townsend and Tony Cascarino coming over, over here meets with the sort of cloudy, uh, you know, wishy-washy kind of, or, you know, sometimes toxic, sometimes, you know, very kind of, um, uh, you know, powerful force of of nationality is a very kind of delicate and, and you know, personal place for, for, for sports people, people to be. And like that, that paragraph, you know, that you read there, you know, England has given, you know, he says he feels more English than Irish. England has given me a life full of opportunity, a family that I absolutely love. I'll spend the rest of my life here. It's been an amazing journey, etc., etc. You could read that in the voice of a, a rugby player coming to Ireland from South Africa or New Zealand and building their life in the same way. And it, it you know, it would make sense. Like, we, we know that sort of hmm. paradigm, if you like. So seeing it from a Ireland to England point of view is so unusual. Um but it's 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 just that sort of point where professional sport and you know that sort of that whole area of, of identity kind of meet. Yeah. But, but that's interesting. I like because we would embrace it if if it was as Tommy says a, a South Both African like, yeah. or a New Zealand, and they were you know they weren't just saying oh, we're, we're here for we're here for the duration of our our contract. We'd, we'd swoon. Why yeah, wouldn't yeah. he love us? Yeah, <laughs> we'd be delighted that it meant they'd stay here. Oh, you love us. You yeah. really it was love genuine. Us. Yeah, it was yeah. a genuine. Thing, but we are also so uh, hypersensitive about anything in the other direction, especially with England. Yes. Um, well, you know, a natural um, segue then is to Simon Cox on page seven of the Sunday Times talking here with Paul Rowan, who's uh, he's just got the job as Billericay Town manager in the non-league in Essex, and he sat down for a coffee with Paul Rowan. He says, I've nothing but fond memories of my experience with the national team. Gave me opportunities which I never expected, so I can't say thank you enough for that reason. I loved it. And he does talk about the being English and playing for Ireland aspect. He says, to be accepted, you have to be seen to be given more. That was the way I felt. I didn't want anybody to ever label me, uh, you weren't born here, so you don't deserve it. And he remembered at the time Robbie Keane saying things like, if you don't want to play for Ireland, don't declare for us, or Stephen Hunt saying, anyone who's 100% Irish, God bless, would like to be here. So he was uh, aware of that aspect as well. The other thing which jumps out is, uh, well, I, I suppose a few things. Ultimately, uh, his spat with John Delaney, which he feels curtailed his Irish career. This was at uh, the Euros in 2012. This was after the three games in Ireland were knocked out and there was a knees up afterwards in Poznan. And he went to the bar where he says John Delaney was there with Robert Finnegan of 3 Mobile and they were talking. I offered them a drink. Delaney was like, no, we're good, thanks. Then he slapped me in a jokey kind of a way across the face. I said, don't do that. Then he said, then he, then he did it again. And I said, no, seriously, John, don't do that. And then he did it again. I said, if you do that again, I'm going to lay you out in front of everybody. Then Robert Finnegan said, enough of that. It was awkward for him. I took my drink, went up to my room in case it got any worse. I didn't want to make a big thing of it either. If he'd come up and said, sorry, I had a bit too much drink and I was out of order. 
Uh, let's just put it to one side. I would have said, John, I've forgotten about it. But he didn't, and it sort of carried on. On the way home, he said goodbye to everybody on the plane and shook their hand. He didn't shake my hand. Same thing on the next away trip. I thought, fine, no problem. And then he was uh, cut from the squad. Noel King, you might remember, took over briefly from Trapattoni. I got a text from Noel to say, you're not in the squad. I'll give you a call to explain. I said, no problem. Give me a call when you're free. I didn't get the call. Uh, he was briefly in with Martin O'Neill and Roy Keane and they cut him adrift eventually as well. He doesn't seem, I would say, particularly uh, bitter about the situation though, Dion. I think it's just uh, the way Simon Cox tells those stories and a few others almost getting into a fight with Stephen on a golf course because he felt that they had hit balls on top of the group ahead when they hadn't, you know, they hadn't moved on far enough and you know that becomes a thing get the impression Simon Cox sees this as the rough and tumble of football <laughs> life like why wouldn't there be scraps at every turn you yeah know? Um, I guess like from the point of view of um, you know the, the Euros in, in 2012 it's, it's just another insight into the kind of uh, how it was going off the field like the sort of drunken the drunken antics of the former chief executive and uh like it's very hard to say that Simon, you know, he isn't Wes Hoolahan, he isn't Andy Reid. Like this idea that uh, Ireland lost out on a on a generational talent no. because uh, because I'm, of, a, of, a, of an argument in a in a hotel no. bar. I was surprised he had thirty caps even. Yeah, he but did pretty well when he was when he played in fairness to him. But I didn't realize he got to thirty. He did, yeah, he did fine. It is an interesting thing that that idea. And again, everyone brings their own. Um, stuff to it but the idea he said you know that, that he came into it where he did feel there was this idea that you had to try harder if you were an English born player that you had to kind of demonstrate that you wanted to be there um, and it does you know go back to uh, you know I suppose it may be in, in a squad that's a little less established and, and is, is struggling a bit you know that those things are harder to ascertain or else maybe we think about them more because you know when I when you think back to players coming in in the past uh it's a, that was a sort of a given, you know, that whether, you know, like Andy Townsend or somebody came into the Ireland squad and just, um, just picked, you know, just did what everybody else was doing and just matched it. Mm. Um, so, like, you know, when you read that, you think about well, the idea that, you know, as an Irish-born player, you might think you don't have to try as hard as a, as an English-born player. It's kind of, it's, it would be curious. But it's, uh, no, it is, it is interesting into um, those... Uh, those times and it is as 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 Paul Rowan says, you know, at the end, like you know, it was a rather surreal time in Irish football, and you know, he said, like it is when you look back on it, and we were we were all there for it, and yet, you know, he says, uh, uh, you know, he loved talking to Marco Tardelli, and you get great experiences out of, uh, or you get it would be great experience listening to Marco Tardelli, a World Cup winner, speak about things, mm -hmm. and then every time Trap would talk, you would pick up the odd word he says, you know, and like you think about the hours and hours and hours <laughs> we all spent sitting in front of, and I, you know, and love and kind of loved them in, in for the most part because there was some like Trapattoni did manage to transmit a wonder, like it's a, a strange energy and a great energy. Um, and sometimes, like I often felt, some you know his press conferences, not, you know it wouldn't be hard, but his press conferences were more entertaining mm. than uh, anything that the Ireland team served up. Yet they were more entertaining without you actually ever understanding anything that he was saying. It was you know delivered through physical actions, through gestures. Um, but we all sat there willingly looking at transcripts of, of these things, looking at, you know, trying to get sense out of what he'd said. Mm. And it was an extraordinary time in that sense as well. And the players were, <laughs> the players were equally um, as kind of a lost a lot of the time is, is, again, you know, does like point to this kind of surreal time in Irish football. Yeah. And with John Delaney, in the in the bar in in soapbox, it does. Uh, well, that bit, that bit's totally out of character. I mean, I, 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 I really question that. Now. It does uh, mention that maybe he rubbed people up the wrong way a touch, Simon Cox, and that when he first got into the squad, he jumped right into the training group with all the you know the Robbie Keens and uh, Richard Dunn group and sort of you know let me at it, and it was generally their spot. Shea given Damien Duff. I wasn't really about taking my time to settle in. I was more like. I want to go and play with the, you guys, you're the cool kids. And, uh, you know, he says, looking back, he realises he may have wound people up the wrong way. 
and m- maybe it might have been perceived as a certain uh, cockiness. Because the byline in the piece is why he always felt an outsider with Ireland. So, But part of that seems to be the English thing. The other thing which jumps out is, so Noel King says, you're not in the squad, I'll give you a call, doesn't call him. Uh, Martin O'Neill brings his career to an end, doesn't call him. Like the standard of man management sometimes, Tommy, <laughs> in this world is just hard to get your head around. School of hard knocks, isn't ah, it? Deal with it. You know, no, no, softly, softly. No. Gently, gently. I thought it was interesting that bit about, um, that you know, that you think of dynamics of squads and, you know, we talked about the interesting thing about the, the Charlton years is I, Jack's main captains in that time were Mick McCarthy and Andy Townsend. Mm. So they were sort of, you know, obviously English born players. So there was almost a sense that like that, that sort of, part of the squad was was was, was central to uh, that sort of part of the whole thing was was central to the identity of the squad whereas in Simon Cox's time you know it was Robbie Keane it was um, you know Shea Given it was Duffer it was Richard Dunn they, they were all Irish born players and you wonder was it harder for an English born player to come in and a guy who didn't have a big profile and maybe wanted to you know put himself in there and make, make the most of it and you kind of wonder I mean Stephen Hunt might have been the one who was kind of uh, openly, sort of, uh, you know, the impression from this piece is that he was he was pretty hostile towards him. But that was there a little bit of a sense that, mm, yeah, you know, there's a there's a kind of a, the Irish born born players are are kind of the main guys here, and, and you're just making up the numbers. Or I don't know or, or maybe if he was a right back, Hunty would have greeted him with open arms, you know. Yeah, well, there, yeah, maybe it's as simple. As right, that. that is interesting though as well because I think Jack did uh, think. You know that there was a a greater um, buy-in likely from guys who he you know that that uh, were slightly detached from the kind of you know you look at the people he fell out with like they were David O'Leary, uh, Frank Stapleton, Liam Brady, uh, Ronnie Whelan to a degree. Ronnie Whelan was captain going into the Italian ninety and didn't get his place, and they were the blue bloods of Irish football. Mm-hmm. Like they mm-hmm. were the you know they were they were they were aristocrats. They were. They came from the the heart the heart of Irish football in Dublin, and Jack's appeal was, was Jack took Irish football outside that constituency, and he made an appeal to the to the to the country that no, sometimes Dublin football had felt sort of isolated from, mm. and I think you know the part the fact that he then had captains as Tommy said that were yeah. uh, from outside that world made made their devotion to him and his way. Greater than somebody like Ronnie Whelan, possibly, or Dave, you know, Dave Leary wasn't going to be captain, but these people who uh, had a, had a kind of history in Ireland beforehand. They were also they were also uh, footballers who liked to pass the ball, which yeah, <laughs> chief. Issue. Interestingly, one of the, the the first things that Charlton did before um, before Jack's time, when everybody came over, when the squads came over from England, the Irish, the the homegrown players would would go off to see their families. You know, and might spend the night. In you know, with with their families, or or maybe go and go and meet them, and the the sort of uh, diaspora players, the second generation players, would be in the hotel almost as a sec as, as a, a different sort of cohort. And he ended that, and he said, everybody stays together, everybody socializes together, and there won't be that division anymore. So, I um, think that's yeah, obviously part of that as well. Just before we like, yeah. just just on this opposite page on that, it's just worth just noting as well the Cleveland Kelleher. Um, progress at Liverpool like when we're talking about Irish born players and you know it has been such a it's it's not a time for Irish born players at big clubs in England but just Klopp confirming that he will start in the Carabao Cup mm. final and Paul Rowan has a piece on basically Kelleher's decision to stay at Liverpool rather than go out alone which has been beneficial for him now because they've reached this final and he'll play at Wembley but it's been hugely beneficial for Liverpool because he's he's clearly emerging as an outstanding goalkeeper and the idea that you can have a goalkeeper like that to call on especially in a time of covid and things like that where you might be you know they've lost they lost Allison uh to covid recently and you know that you, you uh, there are there are opportunities for a keeper but it's also being Liverpool now having a keeper of of Kelleher's standing yeah uh, is is very good for them, but the fact that he's emerging, and I guess every you know this piece makes the same point that everyone feels about the fact that we now have two 
Um, there's not much more we can say about that, but the fact that we seem to be developing two world-class goalkeepers <laughs> yeah. uh, seems to be somehow some kind of cruelty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, pages 12 and 13 of the Sunday Independent. It's a really good piece. This, uh, this is Tommy Conlon, who's out in that neck of the woods, out in Connacht, obviously. And so the uh, Pleasure Dome, welcome to the Pleasure Dome is the headline, uh, has caught everybody's eye in the world of GA over the last couple of weeks. And so Tommy was given the full tour by John Prenty of the uh, Connacht County Board and it's a great piece really enjoyable and he talks about you know the various um, interesting innovations out in that part of the world talks about Knock where uh, there were visionaries who apparently not high on anything saw the Blessed Virgin Mary and various saints and angels materialise on the gable wall of the parish church in 1879 then he mentions Monsignor James Horn bringing Knock Airport to life in 85 and now we have the Pleasure Dome so he gets the guided tour and uh, the place is an absolute success thus far. It is booked out forever. So John Prenty later on in the piece says, a meeting demand has become a job in itself. It's booked out. It's booked out for the next three or four months solid. Today the Galway hurlers were looking for it for next week. Not available. Weekends are hectic too. Clubs booking uh, fitness tests and there's games happening and schools games. and uh, This just seems like the kind of innovation and great thinking and then uh, an ability to carry something out which is probably all too rare too often. So we, the point here is that the Connacht Council is uh, responsible for running 1,500 games a year. vast majority of them are school fixtures. Now, they don't have their own pitches, so uh, the issue down the years is that they had to get onto clubs and look for pitches. Cancellations were common. Uh, normally, on a Tuesday or Wednesday, Thursday, we'd send out the notifications. And then, then on Monday, the girls in the office spend their time looking for new pitches, trying to get games played. So it was a constant issue. And that was what led them to buy the uh, 63 acres on this site. It was farmland in Beckon. Uh, they bought it initially, they built six state-of-the-art pitches, one of them AstroTurf, three of them with flood lighting, a car park for 400 cars, 20 buses installed, uh, a new building there as well with video analysis suites and so on. This was opened in 2012, cost 10 million. This was like a, this is like a centre of excellence for Connacht GEA. And Tommy says it was one of those projects which very few people saw the need for beforehand and everyone thought was a great idea afterwards, the first of its kind in any of the provinces. And they got 7 million of the of the money there came from Crow Park being opened up when the GA made 36 million from the Irish soccer and rugby games between 07 and 10. So that's where that money went is kind of a cool thing to know. But then they used to sometimes sit around and say like, Jays, wouldn't it be great to have an indoor pitch of some kind given the weather as well? So madly, Enda Kenny pops by one day in 2016 when he's teaching to have a look at this centre of excellence. And Enda Kenny says to them, <coughs> did you ever think about building an air dome? We hadn't, he said at that stage, thought about an air dome. So he said there was an air dome in Castle Bar for tennis. As soon as Kenny was gone, the lads hightailed it to Castle Bar for a look. And uh, they get things moving, they go to Finland, they look at an air dome there. It's much cheaper than building steel and concrete structure. Uh, they needed three million. So they had 700,000 left over from the centre of excellence. So they needed another two and a half million. Uh, long story short, they go through the various uh, ways to get money from government and they end up getting over two million from government. The thing is built and it's just a total success. And uh, brilliantly, they're not charging an arm and a leg for this thing. This isn't about making profit. So for instance, if we wanted the three of us to go and rent the air dome for an hour and a half match, 150 euro. He says, very reasonable. We're not here to make money out of GA clubs. It's to improve their lot and to keep the place running. They only need 50 grand a year to keep it running. NUIG are uh, sponsoring it. So I just read this, Dion, and I thought, bloody hell, fair play to all concerned, because that just seems like a total success story across the board. Uh, it's an amazing story and it also has the little bit we always like you know they even had a visitor from Barcelona FC <laughs> the great clubs <laughs> facilities manager and there's nothing we like more in a story like this to know that you know rubber stamp it the rubber well, he, somebody, he somebody. says without a hint of irony this could be the new La Manga well it's an incredible facility it really is and uh, it's testament to the drive and um, uh and just imagination and innovation and persistence of of of, um, of John Prenty and Prenty's Tenty. Prenty's Tenty. Yeah, that's the other aspect. <laughs> we need two things. We need a nickname, and we need you know some external validation. Yeah. And it's it's all here. Um, and it is. It's a, like I would ask Joe when 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 you you say we can rent it for 150 euro for an hour and a half. What 
For what purpose? Well, I would think Gaelic games. Gaelic games. Strictly. Strictly. Yeah. I and wouldn't think you'd be bringing an oval ball in there. No. Uh, but I don't know. Although it's if the Galway hurlers can't get it, then I don't. Well, yeah, think, clearly, I don't think we should be allowed to go in with a soccer ball. No, but I, it is an interesting thing when you say like it is, and again, this comes back to the you know you talk about the vision, you talk about the innovation, you talk about the drive and the desire, and uh, and then you feel right. Well, the the, the people and the and the uh, the groups that have driven this are entitled then to say this is for our sports. Yeah. But then you read through the story. And you see, you know, the the Michael Ring announced that 2.1 million would go to the project. You know, they, as you mentioned, uh, the GEA made r- money available from the, you know, the IRFU and the FAI renting mm-hmm. uh, Crow Park to it. And you think, would this facility be even greater if it was available to all sports? Uh, and everybody was using it. Now maybe they are. I'm, I like, but you know, and I guess the first thing they would say is, well, they're they're full. Yes, with with everybody. But you were saying that they can, you know, how quickly can they turn it around for a concert? But I think I think in seventy two hours they can either have ten thousand seats or t- ready for twenty thousand standing. And how quickly could they turn it around for a soccer match? Uh, five years. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, maybe it is open to uh, sports beyond GAL. It doesn't actually specify here. No, but I don't know. Like, and, and I guess, and it, but it does come. Like, there's no. It's this isn't saying you open this up, but it is an interesting way because the GA person's response will be, understandably, we've done this. Yeah, we've we've come up with the vision. We've, but there's uh, all through the story there is. Uh, Public funding involved, yeah. uh, well, and they're, they're, you know, and everyone's getting public funding. And we, you know, we won't go, Paul Rowan has a story about the you know in, in the Sunday Times about the COVID funding that was made available to the FAI. So everyone is getting that money. Yeah, um, I, I, I would think it's not open because I think strictly the rule is that Rule Forty Two only applied to Crow Park and beyond the Crow Park facilities. It's only in exceptional circumstances, a la the Lean Miller. <laughs> Testimony. Yeah, it's a, well, we had a story it's, recently it's, uh, about the there, soccer. There, yeah, there was a story of an yeah. underage soccer team where some some jobs worth in the area decided to report the local soccer team yeah. using the facility to Crow Park, and Crow Park had to stay. Well, well I think it turned out to be the county rules. board rather than the coke board. Whatever it was, yeah, it was there was a rule there somewhere that stopped them. So that's that's the GA rule, yeah. and that's that's a bigger conversation. So at the moment. I mean, it's the Connacht Centre of Excellence for GEA, so I, I'd say it's very much um, GEA. Uh, the county councils get a bad rap, I would think, or the, even the provincial councils, rather, Tommy. I mean, when you say to anyone, what does a provincial council do? I think we would say they just try and stop the inter-county yeah. football championship <laughs> don't, changing. That's, that's their, don't, don't that's their mess, job. Don't, don't mess with the provincial championships. Yeah, I just thought, well, I mean, I, I think, look, you've, you've covered it there. Um, it's it's a great piece to sort of explain the genesis of this idea, including uh, you know quotes from uh, from Frankie goes to Hollywood and uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge in Xanadu to Kubla Khan, a stately pleasure dome decree. Mm-hmm. And Tommy Conlon calls John Kubla Prenti. So he's definitely uh, he's definitely <laughs> getting a good write up this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, Shout out to en- Enda Kenny, Enda Kenny, yeah, just and Enda as well, like yeah, remark. All from in Bar- Barcelona, as you say as well. But the, you know the. The headline is well. Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. John Prenti didn't set out to build a symbol, but in the beacon of, Be- is it Beckon? I went with Beckon. Uh, Connacht have a modern facility to be proud of. Like it is hugely symbolic. You know, when when I flicked on the TV one day and there was a match between Galway and Roscommon from this place on on TG Car one day, I mean, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. There was just there was just something so like. I mean, I mean, just absolutely like dazzling about it, and, mm. and reading about the, um, you know, in July twenty third, twenty twenty, when they 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 blew up the dome, you know, they they inflated it, three wind blowers powered by electric generators, inflated the balloon, crowds of onlookers gathered to watch the operation. <laughs> it reminded me of you know accounts of like the the Montgolfier brothers and the first hot air balloon flight <laughs> in the Victorian times, or the birth of the railways, you know, all these. Victoria, you know, Brunel and all these people and, and the spirit of kind of uh, <laughs> ambition and, 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 you know, nothing. the sky is the limit. And it's got that real kind of, wow, um, um, scale of ambition. And, you know, John Prenti, as Tommy Collins says, you know, he's he's just, a, he's a pragmatist and Jays wouldn't be great to have an indoor pitch. It's all very nuts and bolts, but it is huge, hugely symbolic. And for Connacht as well, and I, I don't just mean Connacht GA, 
you know, uh, the beacon of Be- Beckham, so to speak. It can be an engine for the local economy. And beyond that, he argues a statement of ambition for the whole province. People can look at it and say, geez, Connacht is vibrant. It's alive. It's a place where people can go and prosper. Um, you know, it is that sense of, wow, this is something. Now, the other the other side of that is, and this taps into what Dion is saying, like part of my reaction to seeing this place and the, the news reports about it and the coverage and the, the live matches is there's a little bit of like, oh, we don't deserve nice things. You know, that this we, we think, isn't this amazing that this is in Ireland? Whereas you go to other countries, you know, famously Iceland, they took the money from qualifying for the Euros and built, you know, half a dozen of these things. And, and other countries with abysmal climates like ours, you know, the state invests in facilities, multi-sport facilities, whereas of this nature to help, um, you know, sports across the board. Whereas, as we know, the Irish state has traditionally outsourced lots of things uh, to people that, uh, to other, you know, outside agencies, you know, outsourced schooling and healthcare to the churches and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and outsourced sport largely to the GAA and anybody else who could muster, um, you know, uh, muster up the, the wherewithal to, to organize uh, sport. That's obviously changed in the recent decades with, you know, funding of, of, of facilities and, and high performance units through Sport Ireland, et cetera, et cetera. But like, it does does come down to, I mean, we should be, we should have places like this. It's not that expensive. You know, Three million, people. yeah. Uh, we should have places like this available for, for multi-sport use around the country. And, we you know, we do deserve it. <laughs> it is It is amazing, but, you know, like we, sh- it shouldn't be as sort of jarring to see it as as it was um, this January. I suppose this is where we sort of move into what we can call broadly the geopolitical <coughs> section of the discussion. Some very interesting pieces in that sphere. So, for instance, we're going to get the two faces of China here uh, in, from uh, very different places. Page eleven of the Sunday Times main section. Tommy spotted this. And this is with the Winter Olympics upon us. Uh, The subheadline is determined to avoid embarrassment at the Winter Olympics. Beijing is crushing dissent with a system of, quote, black jails into which tens of thousands have vanished. So in the six months up up to the end of 2020, 15,000 people were held in these secret jails is one of the eye-catching uh, lines here. And it starts off with somebody who's uh, been there. Inter- interrogators uh, hung him from the ceiling and beat him. He was talking about it afterwards. G is his name. I haven't, haven't mispronounced that. But he said uh, that he had to ultimately confess to having been brainwashed overseas. And he had a dreadful time in this uh, jail network. His... Uh, immediate offence was to protest about the treatment of a teacher who had been thrown into a psychiatric hospital last month after she criticised the authorities and that was why he was in turn when he spoke out about this situation that was why he went into one of these jails and uh, the piece says the timing of these uh, arrests is interesting it's a determination to erase awkward distractions from the countdown to next month's Winter Olympics and uh, the Chinese Communist Party want to showcase the glory of the People's Republic and uh, the piece goes on to talk about uh, the situation in these jails the torture, the sleep deprivation food deprivation, extended time in shackles, cuffs beatings, forced medication, denial medical treatment, sexual abuse uh, stress positions for extended periods such as being hung by the wrists and the threat of physical harm to them and their loved ones. There's a human rights lawyer quoted later on, uh, Ji Teng Biao. Uh, disappearances, says this human rights uh, lawyer, are a necessity for this dictatorship. Disappearances are a necessity for this dictatorship. And uh, he said as well, the hardest part during the 70 days was the uncertainty, not the torture. You never know how long you'll be detained or how long you'll live in the dark, knowing that your family also has no idea of your whereabouts. So, uh, Tommy, this jumped out to you, I think, for obvious reasons. Yeah, I mean, you know, why it appears in a review of the sports um, sections of the paper is because obviously this this clampdown or the uh, intensification of this clampdown is timed to colli- uh, to uh, correspond to the uh, the Winter Olympics, which which start on February the fourth. A hugely controversial Winter Olympics, which have been the subject of. Uh, Pretty feeble uh, diplomatic boycotts from uh, the US, um, 
uh, UK and a number of other states, but but really very minimal sort of a kickback to uh, what China has uh, done. Um, I mean, there's a brief mention of, of Xinjiang and the, the, the Uyghur um, repression, which has been ongoing and very uh, publicly discussed over the last few years. The um, uh, Peng Shui, the Chinese tennis player, her case is obviously part of this, and this piece puts her case into the context of the greater um, suppression of dissent, which is uh, which is being done by these, um, to give them their uh, correct name, as uh, RSDL units, residential surveillance at a designated location, which are, are basically, you get stuck in there for any amount of time, you get interrogated, you describe the methods that are used, eventually you... Um, if you know, generally it's human rights lawyers or, or people who have spoken up about uh, different uh, situations or, or, or mistreatment of, of people. Someone like Peng Shui, obviously, um, and, and more and more, it's, it's public figures. Are, it's happening to. Um, there's a, a, an actress who um, appeared in some of the Marvel franchise movies, Fan Bing Bing. Um, she was disappeared in 2018, emerged several months later after pay, agreeing to pay a fine of $127 million. And there's a very popular influencer as well. And part of that is because, um, according to this piece, it says the clampdown on celebrities reflects the party's suspicion of anyone who amasses a following that could make them a source of power and influence. So that's not just it's not just speaking up against the regime, is that by simply having a, an influence, you are considered a threat to the state. Like, this is, you know, um, I mean, China saw, you know, China saw what Gorbachev did in the Soviet Union, you know, 30, 40 years ago and said, we ain't doing that. Yeah. And it's it's been intensification of of tightening of, of um, clamping down on freedom of expression and, and political uh, dissidence um, to the point where, I mean, the Peng Shui uh, case is just, you know, like we know that uh, some people don't know the, the sequence of events. Um, very, you know, successful Chinese number one tennis player um, put out on her social media page that she, she'd be coerced into sex with a, a leading uh, figure in the regime. The post was taken down, not before it had been shared worldwide. She was disappeared for a length of time and then paraded publicly, including that notorious and that awful um, a Zoom call with the, um, the president of the IOC, Thomas Bach, which was, you know, which the human rights uh, organizations have been dismissed as a charade um, to 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 sort of make this, you know, to whitewash this situation. Um, is safeguard defenders are the human rights organization who've, who've picked up on these these RSDL units. Um, they say China disappeared. Uh, China disappeared. Peng Shui because she had the courage to speak out against sexual abuses by a senior party official. Um, this is Michael Castor of that organization. Beijing has disappeared tens of thousands of its citizens for no less arbitrary reasons to silence and intimidate. We must not allow China to use the spotlight as Olympic host to mani uh, manipulate the narrative and whitewash its record. And that's so that's where it comes to what, what we're talking about here. We're going to see next month. I think one, I think New York Times have a big piece about this as well, where I basically describe this as China's equivalent of what the 1936 Olympics were for for the Nazi regime in in Germany. It's going to be a big, you know, we are amazing for for Xi Jinping and his regime and the whole the whole machine of the Olympic movement and 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 the global sporting family are because of China's global geopolitical power. Despite all these stories and despite the Peng Shui case and all these tens of thousands of people who've been mistreated and despite the Xinjiang, you know, the Uyghurs are just going to trot up and, and go along with it and, and it seems, you know, just play their part in, in the whole thing. Yeah, I feel so despondent about the whole thing, I have to say. I, last month I tweeted out an article on what's happening to the uh, Uyghurs. If you want to check it out, it's about a month ago. Uh, I don't tweet that often, so you'll find it for, pretty quickly uh, at Malloy Joe and it's on The Guardian. So they, I was surprised this didn't generate more conversation, really, uh, because basically there was a UK-based uh, Uyghur tribunal so basically a bunch of lawyers, academics, business people got together to put on a tribunal. It had no government backing, but just to try and highlight what's happening to the Uyghur Muslims over in China. And um, if you're of a sensitive disposition, I'd say just uh, fast forward for the next uh, minute to a minute and a half on your uh, podcast. If you're listening that way, or if you're on the radio, kids in the car, I'd step away for a moment. But in effect here, they are uh, taking apart. It's, 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 it amounts to genocide of a certain variety 
Uh, the report says there's evidence that the detainees have been confined in containers up to their neck in cold water, shackled by heavy metal chains, immobilised for months on end. Some of the detained have been subjected to extreme sexual violence, including gang rapes, penetration with electric, electric shock rods and iron bars, women raped by men paying to be allowed into the detention centre for the purposes, uh, for the purpose of, of raping the women they pay in to do that. The tribunal found evidence of enforced abortions, the removal of wombs against women's will, the killing of babies immediately after birth, and the mass enforced sterilisation through the insertion of IUD devices that were only removable by surgical means. And they say across the 29 counties, uh, the birth rate has fallen by 58.5% in comparison with the previous four years. And... uh, Hundreds of thousands of Igor children have been taken from the families placed in uh, boarding schools. Burial grounds have been bulldozed or built over. Mosques destroyed and the uh, and religious practice banned. And on it goes. I mean, it's utterly horrific. I mean, the world kept spinning and you kind of think, mm. well, I mean, if that doesn't shock us all into some kind of action, what do you do? And, and um, that's what Tommy's piece is tying in with. And so uh, to clap the Winter Olympics is kind of an awful prospect, isn't it? It is, but it... Uh it speaks to where the power is in the world today as well, because yes. without um, any real appetite for taking action among governments who all are desperately dependent on on China, um, there is there is very little hope of anything being done. And we, you know, there's a, a you know there's an Irishman, Richard O'Halloran, who's also been in in jail in China for a long time, and his family feel great despair about the sense that. They're, they're, they seem to be knocking their heads against a, a brick wall in terms of getting real um, action on, on it. And again, would it be different if it was a country that we weren't all so dependent upon? It probably it doesn't change. Obviously, it doesn't change the horror of it and it doesn't change the sense maybe of individuals taking action. But there is a strange... Uh, it is it is strange that the, those stories and like that's horrific stuff. Like this, those stories don't seem to get the same attention no. uh, as 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 others. For for that didn't make a splash. That's so I remember reading, no. the, reading that article in the front page of the Guardian. Yeah. It was gone within a day. I know. It was, no, it's, it's weird, it's and just, it's weird, and like these, yeah. and, and like this Sunday Times story about the disappeared, and that other the other sinister aspect of it that the reappearance is almost mm. as important as well. You know, it's uh, like, you know, you disappear yes. and then... I was brainwashed. Yeah. I, yeah. Mm. And, uh, and I again... say those things. Yeah. Um, just it's, on that... It's just... just sorry, you know, the, the, Tommy. Yeah. I completely agree. Like, our own government is... I mean, China's, you know, geopolitical strength, it is it's pretty hard to say, and we're not, you're not going to do business with China, but it's the craven nature of sports response... To, to all this stuff like I mean could you you know can could the IOC not find a few ski slopes somewhere else in the world without that they didn't have to pander to this you know appalling regime not only pander to it but completely be completely um, you know uh, complete lackeys to 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 the glorification of, of what's going on here you know and, and I, I go back to you know the first time I became aware of it I think might have been when Mesut Ozil Same. tweeted about it Same. a yeah. few years ago yeah. and he he tweeted that about you know about asking you know fellow Muslims to, to make their voices heard about it and Arsenal's immediate response was absolutely to wash their hands uh, of it these are his personal views nothing to do with us yes you know God, that's Mesut Ozil for you. What are you going to do? And if you if you uh, remember, Tommy, I think the subsequent Arsenal game was not shown then on Chinese television. Yeah, yeah. A, they, a, little, a little warning to Arsenal. They don't mess around, you know. They they take if you if you step out of line, even. And it's interesting, even even foreign uh, status doesn't doesn't as as Dion said with the Irishman who's in prison uh, over there doesn't um, doesn't protect you from being mistreated over there. That's how confident they are uh, of the strength of their position. Um, it's. Yeah, I mean, it's just appalling. Yeah. It really is. You know. uh, Dion, in the Sunday Times magazine section, it's quite a long piece, John Ehrlich spends a week in Qatar. We're 10 months out from the World Cup. It's funny, I've been talking about Qatar so long, I can't believe it's actually like this year. Yes, yeah. it's, it's like surreal that it's actually coming to pass at last. So um, it's a long piece. He goes through all the various aspects and controversies. What would you say is the overall 
takeaway from John Ehrlich after a week being shown around Qatar by, admittedly, uh, Qatar executives and, and, and political people who do speak off the record to him a touch as well here and there in the piece. So it's not like it's a, a whitewash or anything. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not a whitewash piece at all. But I feel uh, it details everything from the, the the manner in which Qatar got the World Cup to the shocking um you know, deaths of, of, of workers in, in the country. Um and, you know, the, the like you know the uh you know the the suppression of human rights there brought more broadly. Um it's like it details it all while also going through um <laughs> and I I, I, I I suspect that this will become, you know, the dominant thing like the, the stadiums that are being built, how easy it is going to be for supporters to get around the transport systems all these things and whilst we will insist on saying let's you know uh, if we're going to you know the World Cup isn't going to be boycotted at this stage I think there's a very strong case that it should have been it's not going to be boycotted and people will go and cover it which once it's happening is the right thing to be doing but they will also say we're going to you know we're not going to uh, you know, shy away from the other things. Let's talk about. Um, you know, England will visit. Uh, um, you know, workers camp. Workers camp. Yeah. Uh, like again, which that's good, but ultimately, people will be um, will be distracted and will be taken in by the 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 best countries in the world playing football in state of the art stadiums, um, and that will be that that will become the story and it, it, it's very um, where it's very very hard whatever the circumstances you know in, in very different ways like you always have there's always a backstory around World Cups in particular you know like South Africa will have, you know a lot of it has, has often tend to focus around personal security or security of people traveling there um, and Russia had you know there was a lot of issues there but the the tournament itself always you know they they put it together in that it becomes the spectacle which is what they they're not going to mess it up like it's, they're not going to mess up the no. spectacle which is the whole purpose of getting it and the football and, certainly dominates in the memory yeah in retrospect yeah, yeah. it does There's and no so question. there is no like short of a boycott there is really nothing um that can actually compensate for the fact that it's taking is 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 being held there in the first place. Yeah, I, I don't mean this as a criticism of the piece, Tommy. I think it was a very good piece, but it's nothing I haven't read before either. Yeah, there's nothing new there um, in terms. Of, it's it's more of a summary or, or a kind of survey of you know the, the the Qatar World Cup story. I mean, you you have to remember put it in context that it was the also the culmination of the the the, the most rancid um, uh, you know sports politics um story of, of all time as well with the with the, the bidding process and, and they essentially you know like they, they bought the world cup and and, and they and, and that kind of feeds into some of the, the the talk about about how they expect to deal with it you know there's a there's some there's a, there's a good bit there where it says like that the uh it's almost like they kind of bit off more that they they that they can chew um the trouble is the Qatar's rulers do not always learn the right lessons they've been very naive when it comes to the world cup argues one local observer um, they should have realized sooner that their great wealth would attract greater scrutiny than previous host nations and move faster to deal with the entirely predictable issues. They've ended up overwhelmed. There's a sense that they bought the world. They, they lavished um, the, the corrupt political process with money to buy the World Cup and felt they could similarly, you know, simply blow away all the problems um, in, in the same way. Now, where, where this is interesting is, you know, the argument for... Uh, engaging in uh, engaging with questionable regimes is that by bringing our big sports events and, and, and our competitions and clubs in, in you know in, um, joining with them it will shine a light on their uh, on their on their practices and, and make them reform that was the you know you might remember when the Saudi Arabia Newcastle thing was was happening you know Gary Neville on on, on so, um, Monday Night Football saying that like you know that was that was why he thought you know we need to kind of sit down with these people because you know he says he said you know I remember going to the World Cup and you know people said in Russia and people said Russia had their problems but it was just like one big you know one big happy football family for that month meanwhile you know Putin <laughs> is lining his tanks up on the uh, the borders of Ukraine and, and locking up his, uh, his, his his greatest political rivals but uh, to, to you know uh, to digress like but um so 
the interesting thing in this bit is that he goes to the, the workers camp and he's obviously been shown the the world cup camp that is all like well it's quite nice they've got you know it's it's they've got proper food and it's not all cramped in but you do hear the problem is that there's there's the fifa projects around the stadiums that are all tickety boo and then there's the fact that the the, the other that the the contractors and the big business um have big businesses businesses have been dragging their heels about implementing these changes you know reforming the kafala system of uh, mi- migrant labor um because simply they you know it's the, the, the kafala system is very profitable for mm-hmm. the construction companies and the people building like what's happening outside the big uh, stadium projects you know the other projects that are kind of tangentially related to hotels you know there like and there's a suggestion there from uh, some of the other workers that are interviewed that like yeah it's, no, it's not all great no. it's not all great if you, if you look elsewhere so there's enough of that in the piece to make you kind of think that you know that whole aspect of oh well this world cup will shine a light and force reforms uh, on qatar that you know you wouldn't be quite sure that that's going to be the the case you know the guy al tawadi is the the member of the the organizing committee that's obviously john arledge is 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 put with to uh, to to talked about the whole thing and he, he, he makes a good point his answers reveal a man caught between the conflicting demands of liberal liberal western critics on one side and local conservative forces on the other and those forces they will continue to pull and push even after the world cup so yeah. you know i guess most time will tell whether it does cause genuine reforms yeah i have uh, got a rough unfortunately time against us uh, just to mention it's worth the look if you have the mail on sunday page 60 philip quinn has spoken to kathy gannon who has 440 winners to her name both sides of the irish sea a flat jockey and it's in in some respects uh, your typical jockey story of the horrific injuries she also talks uh, but you know, she. Uh, th- this is a person not to be messed with. Gannon once boxed the head off a male colleague for crossing her with an ill-judged sexist remark. I went into the weighing room and gave him four digs. My friends dragged me off, and that was me. I wouldn't back down. Uh, from Donna Mead, no connections in the in the sport, but made a great career for herself, and uh, famously tweeted about the quality of food at Newbury and uh, was fined for it. And all the other other jockeys uh, chipped in to pay for the fine and. It said, uh, she says herself, it was actually good publicity in a, in a way, got her name out there. But she starts off by saying, uh, Kathy Gannon opens uh, a button on her shirt to reveal a misshaped collarbone. Legacy of her rough and tumble life is a flat jockey. The brake never healed properly, trapped an artery underneath, uh, blocking it to the point that she had to undergo an eight hour, hour operation last year. She's 40 now and, and just retired. Uh, they took a vein out of my leg and put it into my arm under my shoulder. It left a big scar on my leg. I'm on blood thinners now. I was Humpty Dumpty. I got a lot of falls. Broken back, my femur, my jaw, two collarbones. Came back from one collarbone after 11 days, pumped to the gills with codeine. You keep riding, though, through the pain. I was told to retire three years before I did because of my shoulders. I was getting three injections a year, still had problems. I have no cartilage in either of them and need replacements, but I'm too young. So uh, that's worth a read if you're looking for it. And uh, I know the lads as well spotted that. We'll be talking about FBD Semple Stadium, which uh, Mick Foley and Matt Cooper write about today. So FBD Semple Stadium will be the future. Uh, guys, thanks so much. Dion Fanning, Associate Editor at The Currency. Thank you for coming in. Thanks, Joe. And Tommy Martin from Virgin Media Television. Cheers, Tommy. Cheers, guys.